respond. As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Father in heaven, we've come to worship and we have acknowledged your presence among us. It is an awesome thing to think of being in the presence of God together even in this moment, but to know that we live in your presence. These are people that you abide with us and we with you. So Father, now I pray that you would make again your presence known to us through uh, your word. I pray that you convince us of its truth and enable us then to believe it and to live it. So help us now, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, turn, please, to 1 Timothy in chapter 6. 1 Timothy in chapter 6. I went to read verses 11 through 16. 1 Timothy chapter 6, please. Hear the word of God. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He was the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now it's going to take me two weeks to work through this. Next week we'll pick up this great doxology in verses 15 and 16. Today I want to work through the verses that precede that great doxology. In some sense to prepare us to hear it, but, but in another sense uh, to stand alone so that we can understand what it means to follow him. You'll notice, as Paul writes to Timothy, this is Paul the Apostle, he's writing to Timothy, Timothy, pastor of this church in Ephesus. As Paul writes to Timothy about how he's to be that pastor, how he's to live, and how the church is to be as the church of the living God, he writes to Timothy with this little expression, I'm not going to say much about it except to say that this little expression should resonate, should resound in our minds all the time, if you ever want to hear a word from God, this little expression will be at least part of it, and that is, but as for you, but as for you, given that you belong to me, as for you, this is what you're to believe. This is how you're to live, you see. As followers of Christ, we have this new expression said to us by God. But as for you, you're no longer that. But as for you, you're no longer to live like that. But as for you. So he writes to Timothy. And he's been writing to Timothy about false teachers and the implications of the false teaching that comes in the life of the church. He, he's written to him about various things. And he says, now, 
here's what's true for you, Timothy. And even as he says that, here's what's true for you, Timothy, as opposed to others, as opposed to how others live, this is what's true for you. He's saying it to us as well, I think. This isn't simply unique to Timothy. Now, there's some uniqueness here. Paul's obviously addressing him as the pastor of the church, but this is true for all believers, what is to follow. He lays out for Timothy, for us, that which is true for us, that which is true about our lives. He says, others may live a particular way, but as for you, as my own, I want you to know and to do this. And he lays out four, really, commands. Notice. He says, I want you to flee. I want you to pursue. I want you to fight. And I want you to grab a hold of or take hold of. Those four things. He says, I want you to flee, pursue, fight, and grab a hold of. And all of that, he says, I want you to do with persistence. I want you to endure. I want you to do church uh, till Jesus comes, essentially. Notice how he puts it. He says, I want you, verse 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to keep after this. Till Jesus comes. This isn't something for the first century. It's not something just for them. It's something for the church to be aware of and to pursue all the days uh, till Jesus comes. So flee, pursue, fight, grab a hold of. As we think of these, uh, in one sense, each of them can stand on its own. That is, we could take up this notion of, of fleeing these things he writes, but, but to do that, we'd have to ask, what are these things we're to flee, and why are we to flee them, and how are we to flee them? And then he says that we're to pursue these other character traits of, of righteousness and, and godliness and faith and love and, 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 and steadfastness and gentleness. We're to, we're to pursue those, so we're to flee these things. So what are we to flee? How are we to flee them? Why are we to flee them? We're to pursue these. We know what they are, but why these? What does it mean really to pursue those? And then he says, I want you to fight the good fight of the faith. And we have to ask the question, what is this faith that we're fighting? And are we fighting for it, because of it, or with it for something else? What does he mean that we're to fight the fight of the faith? Why is it a fight? Why is it a struggle? Who is the enemy? And then he says, I want you to grab a hold of this eternal life You've made the good confession. That is to say, you've confessed faith in Jesus. You said he is the Savior, he's the Lord, and, and that you now belong to him forgiven, and thus you have eternal life. You've said that, Timothy. You've made that confession in front of others. We who are followers of Christ have made that confession of faith. We believe in Jesus, thus eternal life is ours. And so Paul says to Timothy, you've made the good confession. I want you to grab a hold of that eternal life. And we have to ask the question, well, if we have it, why do we have to grab a hold of it? And if it's to come, how can we grab a hold of it? Wouldn't he better have said, if it's to come, this eternal life, it's a future thing, why wouldn't he, be, he simply said, Timothy, wait patiently for eternal life? But he doesn't, he says, grab a hold of it. And so you see, we take all of those, each one, and we will a bit, to take them and look at them and ask, what's each mean? But I think it's helpful also to head into this realizing that in a very real sense, this is a whole package for us. You see, our lives aren't to be defined simply by fleeing certain things. That isn't the end of it. It isn't to be marked simply by fleeing. We're also to pursue something as well. 
And in the pursuit of that something, there's, there's a fight involved in it. And it's a fight for and with this faith that, we've, that we have, this truth that we have, this gospel that we have. Yes, we're fighting for it, but we're also fighting with it to enable us to flee and pursue. And as we fight with it, the thing that we're going to grab a hold of as we fight with that faith is eternal life. And so we see it, it's a package. It, it all goes together. It isn't just, well, I flee well, but I don't pursue so hot. That isn't it, you see? It isn't, well, like, I'm going to do one this week and one next week. You know, I overload myself. It isn't that. It's all of this together because it's leading to something. And the thing, I think, to which it's leading in all of this and all of these together is this sense of eternal life. That that's really it, you see. That that's what we're to grab a hold of. That's how we're to live. That's what we're to know and to be known by. We're to be known as people who have eternal life. We're to know ourselves in that sense as well. And so in the one sense... All this is, if I could put it that way, is, 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 is a working out of this expression of Jesus when he said, repent and believe the gospel. Because your repentance is a turning away from, it's a fleeing, you see. And believing this faith, this trust, is a pursuing. It's a trusting, it's a pursuing, that which is true. And so when the rich young man came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, you remember, said, sell all you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. That was in a sense repentance and faith, to repent and believe, to repent, to flee from your idolatry, to flee from all your stuff. That, rich young man, is what has you bound up. That's what's keeping you, if you will, from eternal life. That's what's keeping you from the real worship of God. You have the worship of all your stuff. And so Jesus says, repent. It's all that you have. Flee from this stuff and believe. Pursue me. Come and follow me. So Jesus meant when he said, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. That sense of repentance, to deny yourself. And it isn't so much that Jesus meant deny things to yourself. What he meant was deny yourself to yourself. Deny your sinful inclinations to yourself. Deny them. Say, I don't know them. I don't know that person who follows after those things. Flee from that. Flee from those evil passions and desires and sinful inclinations. Flee that, you see, he says. Take up your cross, which is a way for Jesus to say, Put it to death. Kill it. Execute it. That's repentance. Flee from it. And then he said, come and follow me. Believe, pursue after me. It's what Paul, the apostle, meant when he wrote on various occasions. For instance, when he wrote to the church in Colossae, he said this. He says, put to death that which is earthly among you, and, and that he meant these sinful inclinations, these worldly thoughts, these things that aren't from God. He says, put those to death. But then he said, seek the things that are above. Put on this new self. Take off this old self. Repentance, fleeing, belief, pursuing. Also that 
something could be grabbed a hold of, something could be known, and that which is grabbed a hold of this eternal life. So the question is, what is it? What is this eternal life? Now, that's one of those expressions that Christians use and are used of us all the time. And the great danger with these great expressions is that we forget what they mean. We just say, we believe in Jesus and have eternal life. And you go, what's that? What is this eternal life? Now, one of the great uh, translations of the Bible, the King James Version, you're as old as me, first of all, bless you. Second of all, uh, you know that version of the Bible. You probably grew up with it. You have it running through your head every time you're reading your present translation because that's what you memorized as a kid. That's what I memorized as a kid. And so I have all these... I think my mother's the only one left who speaks King James, but, uh, but she still does. And, uh, uh, but, uh, uh, but, but, but it translated this expression eternal very often as everlasting. Now that isn't a bad translation. It's proper in one sense, but you can feel the nuance of everlasting. Everlasting says it's going to go on forever, and that's true this Eternal life is, in fact, everlasting life that will live on forever, even after physical death. That we won't perish, that we won't be headed for destruction, that we won't be headed for condemnation, that we won't be headed, if you will, for hell. It's everlasting. It goes on. But what you see, everybody, in a sense, exists forever. There is a resurrection to both life and judgment. Now, some who live will have life, and some who exist will know that as death. Not a ceasing of existence, but what the scripture speaks of as eternal punishment. And so when we think of everlasting, it isn't just simply that we're going to to exist forever, even after death, but we're going to live. That is, we're going to have real life as opposed to death. Real blessing in the presence of God as opposed to his wrath or condemnation or judgment, you see? And and so that's this sense that this eternal life comes from this life that is to come, that pertains to this age which is to come, and this age which is to come is the blessed rule of God. Uh, The Israelites thought of time Uh, in in two different ways. One is this present age, and secondly, the age that is to come. And when they spoke of the age that is to come, they spoke of the rule of this one who is the Messiah. And so when they would understand, thus, as we understand this notion of eternal life, it's this sense of this rule of the Messiah, this one, this rule in which everything follows him, this rule in which everything reflects him, this rule where he is present, this rule where there is, in fact, life. And thus, when we speak of eternal life, we're speaking of that which pertains to that life. Now, how does one enter into that life? We see, the difficulty is that we're dead prior to entering that life, even if we're breathing. We're dead before we enter into that life, even before breathing. You remember, 
in Genesis chapter 3, Garden of Eden, the promise of God was, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Now, Adam and Eve, upon eating the tree, didn't immediately physically die. Physical death entered into the human race at that point. But there was another death that took place, and that is a spiritual death. We think of that which is spiritual. We think of that which is sort of beyond our senses, that which enables us, if you will, in a very real sense, to know and to relate to this God whom we cannot see, the spiritual tie, if you will. So spiritual death means that I, I can't do that. I'm, 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 I'm estranged from him. I, I'm not with him. I, I can't know him. And you see, that's what happened. The human race fell into this death. So how do we get from that death to life? Well, only by a new birth, Jesus said. And that new birth comes through his spirit. And it comes by way of his Holy Spirit to us. And we receive it by believing. We receive this new life, if you will, by faith. We enter into it, we become conscious of it, we say, yes, I believe, because you see this life comes from Jesus. How does it come from Jesus? It comes from Jesus because, you see, he's the one who came and did for us that which Adam and Eve did not do for us. He's the one who came and obeyed. He's the one who, who pleased his father. And then we know he took our sin upon himself so that we might be forgiven our sins. And you see, in that work of Jesus, to those who believe, there's a reconciliation with God, and we receive this life. And this life comes by way of knowing God through Jesus, and it is knowing God through Jesus. It comes through it, but, but, but really the blessing of it is that now we're reconciled to God. We live in his presence, unafraid uncondemned, forgiven our sins. Now, let me just give you one verse. John chapter 17 and verse 3. This Jesus is praying. This is the night that he's betrayed right before the crucifixion. And just this verse 17, verse 1, chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, Jesus said, I have the, 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 the authority over everyone, and, and it's mine then to give as a gift eternal life, to all those you've given me. And he said, and this is what that is. Eternal life is, is knowing God. He puts it, knowing you, Father, and knowing me, Jesus, whom you've sent. And if we're going to be really Trinitarian about this, then we know the Father through the Son by way of the Holy Spirit who reveals him, brings him to us. And so Jesus says, this is it. They know God. People who have eternal life know God have been reconciled to him, forgiven their sins, declared righteous by him. That's what we call justification. And so all of that, you see, this gift from God 
takes us from, from death into life. For instance, in John, in chapter 5, we read this, I believe, as part of our responsive reading this morning. Verse 24 in John 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. You see, there's a sense in which, when we think of eternal life, that someone who believes, there's this like fast forwarding or this that brings the future to the present. There's this, this crossing, spiritually speaking, of this huge chasm that brings the future to the present, the present to the future. And he says, listen, those who believe in me have eternal life. Why? Because in one sense, the judgment has already taken place for you. In the sense that it took place on the cross in Jesus so that sins are forgiven. So you see, you have eternal life. Sins forgiven. Judgment come for you. And, and, and you've passed from death, spiritual death. Haven't yet passed from physical death that's going to happen after in the, in the future for those who've come to believe, right? None of us, if you look, have died yet physically. Uh, we're all intact, if you will, still breathing. But a day will come when we will. But he says, you've passed from death to life. In other words, there's a sense in which in the mind of God, all that's taken place. We, believers, belong to him. And so that is this eternal life. And he says, you know me now. So there's a sense in which you see this eternal life is both future, it is that which is to come. We're going to have it in its fullness, this life where we're actually living in the immediate presence of God. He's there. Uh, we move from faith, if you will, to sight, as the scripture says. I have no idea what that's going to look like. I mean, I just ooh, have a good imagination, but ooh, I, that's way like beyond me. Don't know what that's going to look like. Anticipate it. Don't know what it's going to look like. So there's this future aspect to eternal life. The scripture speaks to us uh, as heirs of eternal life. It is, it's coming in that sense. We're going to receive it. But it also speaks, scripture does, as it does in this passage I just read from John chapter 5, as, as present, we have it. We, we, I read that to you from 1 John in chapter 5. That was the rationale for that particular uh, passage of scripture. Uh, where John writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, and he says, This is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever doesn't have the Son hasn't, uh, the, doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. And so you see, he says, this is our testimony. He's given it to us, eternal life. Yes, it is to come, but it is a present possession as well. Because whoever has Jesus has this life within him, this new life. It enables us to know the very presence of God. That doesn't mean we feel the very presence of God, as if you can reach over and touch the person you're sitting by in whose presence you're in. It doesn't mean we feel it, but we know it. We know that we're in the presence of God. And this knowing that we're in the presence of God for believers shouldn't bring fear to us. It shouldn't make us anxious to know that we're in the presence of God. It should give us a great sense of peace to know that God is with us. 
Some of you know that our dear friend Mark Brown was in a motorcycle accident the other day. And uh, I saw him first. He was just coming out of a sedated time. He was moving from this sedation to morphine, which, you know, he's still a bit cloudy. He's intubated, has a tube down his throat. His eyes are open. We're communicating some. He's spelling words on his, on his uh, blanket that covers him. And so we're trying to figure that out. I felt like I was playing Wheel of Fortune or something, asking for a vowel from time to time. But, um, you know, it was, it was as those moments are. But as I turned to Mark before I prayed and left, I simply said, God is good. And we both wept. Because that's what it is to know eternal life now. To know that God is with us. And when we hear that word, no matter what else has happened, no matter what other questions we may have about God being with us, but at that moment of need, there's no fear. It brings great comfort. The great benediction of the Israelite priests over Israel. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. That expression, may the Lord make his face shine upon you, is may God's presence be known to you. The other expression in that benediction, may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Again, that's the same expression. May you know the face of God. And so we speak about the face of God. We speak about his presence. If you see a picture of someone and you pointed out all that so-and-so, it's normally their face. It's unlikely to be their feet. Now, some people have pretty distinctive feet, I suppose. And so you take a picture of their feet and you go, oh, I knew who that is. But you say, I want to give you a picture of someone. It almost always includes their face. And so this face of God, you see, it's, it's upon us and, and it's, 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 it's shining upon us. It's his countenance lifted up, not down, lifted up upon us. And so you get this great sense, you see, of God's presence with us, that we know him. That's this sense of eternal life, that he is with us. We are with him. And so you see, what Paul is writing to Timothy, what he's writing to us is this, is that if you're going to really live now, you must grab a hold of that eternal life. Now, you might think, why do I need to grab a hold of it? Because you see, this little expression, grab a hold of or take hold of, is an expression that's used, that you should get the feeling, get the, get the sense that you're grabbing it by the scruff of its neck and pulling it up. This little expression, grab hold of, is, is the picture word that's used when, when, when Peter is walking on the water. And he gets distracted, and he begins to sink. And the scripture says that Jesus grabbed a hold of him. Now, if you've ever grabbed a hold of someone sinking, that, that, that's a fairly violent act, if you will. There's lots of water splashing. Uh, that's the sense. You know, it was deliberate. It wasn't like, oh, let me just sort of, sort of. No, no, no. It was a real deliberate grabbing a hold of. I know what I'm doing. I'm going after this, and he's coming out of the water. 
that sense of grabbing hold. This word is used in another picture form in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, about Paul when the mob comes to, to, to arrest him. They're angry with him and they're shouting and they say they grab, they seize him, they grab a hold of him. This is a seizing of this eternal life. And you say, why should I have to seize it if I already have it? And how can I seize it if it's to come? Well, we must seize it. It tells us something about the nature of our lives. It is easy to drift along. It's easy to forget that we have it. It's easy to forget that it's there and we need to grab a hold of it. One author puts it like this. He says, grabbing a hold of is a suitable figure of speech because it points to a decisiveness and to a conscious effort. The effort had nothing to do with justification by works. That is, we're not grabbing a hold of it, meaning I have to be good enough in order to earn this eternal life. It isn't that at all. He's saying it has nothing to do with justification by works, but implies the mental bracing of attention for decision. Men do not drift further into eternal life. The Christian life isn't a drifting. It isn't a coasting. It's not downhill. It's a consuming passion. It's the very guts of our lives. Men do not drift further into eternal life. The life of the believer is a conscious response to God in Christ, a journey consciously continued into the love of God, a deliberate further feeding on the bread of life. And so at any given moment, a decision to take of yet more of God's free gift, which is eternal life, in Christ Jesus. I think the way Paul had put it was like this in Philippians in chapter 3, verse 7. Paul in this passage has laid out who he is apart from God, all his credentials and his upbringing and his education and his heritage and all of that. And, and compared to everybody else, Paul was, was Phi Beta everything. But then verse 7, he says, but whatever gain I had... I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This word count, Paul says, I've been intentional. I've thought it through. I know who I am apart from God. And I know the great promise of God for eternal life. And I'm willing to grab a hold of eternal life and let everything else go. Because I know its value. In fact, he says, indeed, I count everything uh, as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, you, re you realize this is Paul saying this. And you say, Paul, you've got Christ. He says, yes, I know. But I, I want to know him better tomorrow. In that sense, I want more of him. He has more of him quantitatively, but qualitatively in his own life. This is Paul saying, say, I want to know Christ more because I know the more that I know him, the more life I have. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says, I want to believe more and more deeply so that, so that this righteousness that is mine because of Christ, I'll rest in it and live it. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that is, 
the power of this life that comes because he's been resurrected and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in the death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And you say, Paul, you're, it, it's going to happen. It's been promised to you. It's been given to you. It's, Paul says, yes, I know, but you don't understand. I want to live as much of it now as I possibly can. That's my hope for the future. Well, if you have a hope for the future and you can bring it into the present, wouldn't you? So Paul's saying, I know this is to come, but I've been given life in him. And I want to know that now as much as I possibly can. So he goes on to say this, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. He says, I, I, I know this resurrection from the dead is going to come. I know that this eternal life is going to come in his fullness, but, 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 but I'm pressing on to know it more and more all the time. Um, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward what, to what lies ahead, I'm going to flee all that which kept me from it. I'm going to pursue all that which is consistent with it. Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, which frankly is eternal life. If that's where I'm headed, that's when I'm moving on. And then he says, let those of you, of us, who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to this, that which we have attained. And then in verse 20, he says this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He says, listen, I have this dual citizenship. Here I am on earth, but my real citizen, my citizenship, my identity is in heaven. And so that's how I'm living under that citizenship. I'm grabbing hold of that which is to come and living it out as God will help me in the present. You see, that's what we're to do. John, the apostle, would put it like this in 1 John in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Okay, that's the eternal life that's to come. When Jesus returns... We'll see him as he is, we'll be transformed, and we'll be like him. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, that sentence exists to thrill your soul. There isn't anything that you could think that could make you happier than the thought of seeing Jesus and being transformed so that we can be like him. Not like him in his divinity, we're not going to be God but like him in his perfect humanity, meaning to live in such a way, to be in such a way that we'll always glorify God. There's absolutely nothing that could make us happier than that thought. All sadness, if you will, in a very real sense, comes from the thought that that isn't going to happen. That could never happen. Happiness comes from the thought that that really is going to happen. We must train our minds to think, yes, that is real life. 
And so John says, all right, if that thought captivates you to be conformed to the image of Jesus, then he says this, and everyone who thus hopes in him that is in Jesus, that's your hope, purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, why wait? Why not get on with it now? If you're going to be pure as Jesus is pure, then flee that which is evil, pursue that which is good, maintain this faith that is the truth of the gospel that says you have life in you and grab a hold of eternal life. See the point. So all these things, he says, Paul does to Timothy. I want you to flee these things. What things? Well, he had just been talking about greed. He had just been talking about the love of money. He had just been talking about covetousness, which really then is all summarized by idolatry. That is finding your contentment, finding your life in that which is not blessed by God, that which is not given to us by God. He says, so flee all of that idolatry. Flee all the things that the false teachers are teaching and their implications, which lead to envy and jealousy and quarrels and all of that. Flee all of that, Timothy. Flee all of that, Christian. Flee all of that, follower of Christ. Leave that behind. Repent. Turn from all of that and pursue that which is true of Christ. Because you see, that's eternal life, that being conformed to the image of Jesus. Pursue that. Pursue that which is true. Pursue righteousness. That is, pursue being right in all of your relationships. To know that which is right to do and to do it, to love, if you will. Pursue righteousness. That isn't a self-righteousness, but pursue that righteousness which comes from Christ, that's, that, that's sourced by Him. So be dependent upon Him and pursue that which is, which is right, most especially as you relate to each other. Pursue, He says, godliness. That is to be devoted to God, to have your love for God as the very passion, the very motivation of your life. He says, pursue that. And again, as he says, pursue it, he's saying, hunt after that, run after that. Again, not a casual thing, not a drifting, but an intent and a desire and a passion. He says, may this be the passion of your life, run after godliness. And then he says, I also want you to run after, to pursue faith. So I have faith, and yes, of course, but, but deepen that faith. Run after it. Run after love. The only thing that matters, the scripture says ultimately, is faith working by love. Working itself out, this faith that we have in Jesus, it works itself out as we love each other. So pursue loving each other. Set yourself aside and love one another, seek the interests of others, even as you do your own love, you see. And then he says, pursue steadfastness or perseverance. Continue on in this. Jesus said, he who endures to the end will be saved. Don't give up, he says. Continue to pursue that. You'll have dark nights. You'll have dark days. You'll have times when you don't want to continue on in the faith. And he says, oh, Timothy, oh, Christian, oh, follower of Christ, make sure that you don't give up. Pursue this. Persevere. And then he says, with gentleness, that is meekness, 
a meek person again is this person who understands who he is in the presence of God, completely humbled, saying, I know who I am in the presence of God. I know the best I can do on my own is death, is condemnation. Really is hell. That's the best I can do. I know that my life comes as a gift only because of Jesus and only through faith in him. I have nothing to put myself over on another person. And so the gentle person is the person who knows that, who lives in the security of knowing that he's been accepted by God, not on the basis of what he's done, but on the basis of what God has done through Jesus. And so there's this sense of assurance and and that allows us to be gentle to others free. We should never be surprised when others disagree with us because we would have disagreed as well until the Spirit of God came upon us. And so we shouldn't be surprised when people disagree with us. We shouldn't be surprised when people hate us. Uh, It shouldn't make us fret and get us down because we know that's simply what's going to happen. We know that we would be that person had not we done better, but the Spirit of God had not come upon us. And so we can be gentle with them. We can be understanding towards them because we are just like they. Accept that for reasons unknown to us. God has come and rescued us. And so we'll trust God for their rescue as well. So we don't need to take offense. We don't need to be upset. We can be gentle with them. That's the sense of, of meekness, you see. We, we shouldn't ever be surprised when anyone or even one of us sins even grievously. We shouldn't say, oh, we can't associate with them because of that sin. Because we're meek. We know who we are in the presence of God. We're that sinner. And so when someone else sins, even if it's a grievous sin, there's a sense in which we can't put ourselves up above them and say, oh, I would never do that. We can be gentle with them, to restore them, to help them, to listen. We don't put ourselves above them. But you see, all of these are temptations, aren't they? There's a temptation not to love, but to think of ourselves, not to believe, but to follow after our own devices. There's this, this, this temptation to give up. There's this temptation to, to be proud. Paul says to Timothy, you want eternal life? Flee and pursue and fight this good fight of the faith. Meaning, this faith that we have, this gospel that we have, protect it. As as the mission of the church, as we saw from 1 Timothy chapter 3, the pillar in support of the truth, make sure it stays pure. But but, but you see, it all revolves, Timothy, around you believing this truth. Don't sacrifice any of it. Maintain this truth. Fight for it, but also fight with it. It's this truth that will enable you to flee that which you should flee and pursue that which you should pursue. It's this truth. If you don't have this truth in Jesus, you won't know what to flee and what to pursue. And you won't have a heart to flee and you won't have a heart to pursue. This, this faith enables you to do that. It enables you to stand, you see. You know that great passage in Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul speaks of, the, of, of doing battle with the evil one and the armor of God. It's all about this truth. First, he, or at the very summary point, he says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, this truth. Well, you see, that, that truth that we have, that we fight with, also armors us as well. Because we have the belt of truth. This truth, he says, it, it girds you up and enables you to move. Because you know this truth. This breastplate of righteousness. How is it that you know that you're righteous in the sight of God? Because this truth, this gospel tells you that, it is, that you are. You need to shod your feet with the gospel of peace. This truth is to be your very foundation, this gospel of peace. 
you to take up this shield of faith which is informed by this truth. You're believing in that which this truth says. You have a helmet that is the helmet of salvation. And your thinking, therefore, is all about the salvation that comes through faith in Jesus. So he says, I want you not only to fight for this faith, but I also want you to fight with it. To grab a hold of this truth and allow it to inform your life so you'll know what to flee and you'll know what to pursue. And so that you can grab a hold of eternal life. When you get up in the morning, when I get up in the morning, what do we think about? Well, I won't go into the gory details because I know there's some things we think about that are just private and personal and should be at that hour of the morning. But as the day wears on pretty quickly, shouldn't we be thinking, I am a person who has eternal life. I am a person who's been forgiven by God, thus reconciled to him. I am a person in whom God lives, and thus he gives me life. I'm a person who lives in the very presence of God, his face upon me, his countenance lifted up to me. Shouldn't I flee? that which is inconsistent with eternal life? Shouldn't I pursue everything that's consistent with eternal life? And shouldn't I do that? Because I have the faith, this truth. Shouldn't I believe it? As we do, you see, we'll be grabbing a hold of, of eternal life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us, that we would be people conscious of who we are, that we have eternal life in Jesus. And Father, that nothing would deter us from grabbing hold of it. Father, we're grateful that you've called us together. As your church, you've guarded our, our faith and our lives. You've given us your word. It does provide all that we need for life and godliness. Father, we know that the evil one may attempt to draw us away. And even though our sinful inclinations move at times strongly, it appears within us. We ask that you would enable us to be content to trust in your word, to live under its protection. In so doing, cling tightly to Christ we may grab hold of this eternal life. We thank you for the life that you give us as your people give you thanks on this day for the birth of Samuel Ryan, for Deborah and Tim Bredehoff. We're grateful, Father, for his arrival and we pray your blessing upon Samuel and his parents. Father, we do pray this morning for Mark Brown as he, as he recovers from his accident. And we pray that this surgery on Tuesday on his leg, his knee, would be successful. That you'd use the doctors in this way to bring healing to his 
his leg and the subsequent surgeries he's facing, we pray that you would cause them to bring healing to him most especially, we pray for Mark and Brenda. Katie would know your presence with them. Bless them, God. Pray and so your father as she recovers from her reconstruction surgery on her shoulder that you would continue to heal her, Father, as well in others. There's all kinds of needs, God. And so we pray that you would enable us as your people to grab a hold of eternal life. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.